This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. The midterm elections are less than a week away. A lot of voting has already taken place, but what are the issues that seem to concern the voters most? Have there been strides made to improve election fairness in the last two years since the last general election? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going to talk about the 2022 midterm elections. Molly Hemingway joins us. She's a Fox News contributor, editor-in-chief for The Federalist, and author of the books Rigged and Justice on Trial. Molly, welcome back. It is great to be here with you. Are you surprised that so many Democrats, both nationally and locally, have decided to make abortion the issue they're going to run on in the midterms? I don't think that's particularly surprising because not that abortion is a great issue to run on. It's clearly not a great issue for Democrats right now, but they just don't really have anything else. And they had previous success with scaring people about abortion in the 2004 war on women election and other subsequent elections. And so it made sense that they would glom on to that. Uh, They don't want to talk about the economy. They don't want to talk about the border or crime or inflation or supply chain problems or foreign policy disasters. And so you don't have much left to work with. And they had been led to believe it would be a great boon for them. I don't think it's working out as well as they thought it would. What are the issues that most voters seem to be most concerned about? It's kind of a general thing. I think you keep when people poll on this question, people just keep responding in the same sort of set of issues related to the economy, inflation, also crime being a big problem for a lot of people. And this is a reason why the election is seeming to go in Republicans' favor, because a lot of these issues are tied to Democrat governance, either at the local or national level. You know, people who are worried about crime tie that to decisions made by Democrat mayors or other officials to have a you know deliberate sort of soft on crime approach, getting rid of some of the methods that people had used to keep streets safer. And then the economy is obviously, you know, something where Democrats have had very little dissent about how they were going to do things from shutting down our domestic energy supply to COVID pandemic response, they're really uniform on these things, and it has led to economic problems that everybody's experiencing. Have any strides been made to improve election fairness in the last two years? Yeah, I actually think this is one of the big issues that people should be thinking about. They're expecting Republicans to do well, and frequently they tie that to these Democrat policies that are unpopular or the quality of candidates that Republicans have recruited. But if Republicans do well, as well as they are expected to do on Tuesday, a huge part of that is going to be a massive effort to begin to restore integrity to U.S. elections. The fact of the matter is that Democrats had spent decades working on election administration. They had their most success 
thanks to COVID response in 2020, in dramatically changing how we run elections and making them, in the eyes of many election observers, less secure. It was a really big wake-up call for Republicans and conservatives. And so everyone from establishment Republican officials like the RNC to other establishment Republican figures all the way down to like tons of grassroots groups have been working to train election observers, to educate people on what local laws are and what they should be and how they're followed, and also to just litigate like crazy on everything that Democrats are doing. And so you know, we fight over how we run elections because we have these twin values of wanting to make sure everybody who wants to vote and should vote can vote, but also to make sure that while voting might be easy for those who should be voting, that cheating is hard. And so you just have these things going back and forth between whoever's in power, but a lot of progress has been made. And, you know, there's still some major problem areas like Pennsylvania, but some really good strides in banning the private takeover of government election offices. That's happened in like 17 states. So lots of room for improvement, but lots of progress as well. Real clear politics, and I believe the Cook Report, have reported that Republicans are favored slightly to win the Senate and by a larger margin, the House. Do you trust the polls? Well, polling has been a problem in this country for a long time, and the polls this year are kind of weird. And so I don't really trust the polls. I'm more inclined to trust the real clear politics average. They have a method of adjusting for for bad polling, basically. They look at how pollsters have always, you know, tended to privilege Democrat voters or Democrat support and they factor that into their analysis. And so I think that they are more credible. They are pretty bullish right now on Republicans. I'm not sure if I'm as bullish as they are in terms of how many Senate seats can be won or how big the House majority will be. But it's shaping up to be what it was always going to be, which is a good night for Republicans. What Senate races are you watching in particular? Well, the normal ones. I am very interested in the Oz-Fetterman race in Pennsylvania which was, you know, for a long time looking to be a blowout for Fetterman. And Oz is now, I think, either tied or predicted to win. It's just interesting. This was, it was interesting before the Fetterman debate where he clearly was having trouble hearing and processing language, which is it's bad for any politician, but particularly bad, I think, for someone who's wanting to run for the Senate. I have been interested in the Ohio race, which J.D. Vance should, should win. Uh, I'm also really interested in the Arizona race, which is Blake Masters versus Mark Kelly. Democrats have basically made that a race that they are not willing to lose. They have invested like $100 million in that race. It's really hard to win a state like Arizona if your opponent has put $100 million in. But Blake Masters is doing pretty well. He might win. So I think that if you had people like Blake Masters and J.D. Vance in the Senate, they're part of this new type of Republican that's willing to take on some of the big issues facing the country, whether it's tech companies controlling freedom of expression or going after freedom of the press. And so having a couple of them in the Senate could really make things different for the country. Is it wise for Republicans to have wealthy celebrity Senate candidates with really no legislative experience like Herschel Walker in Georgia, Oz in Pennsylvania, and Masters you just mentioned in Arizona? 
Well, I can't predict the future, but certainly having had a Senate full of people with previous legislative experience hasn't been working out so well for the American people. So I'm not sure if that's the most important thing. I think most Americans are looking at D.C., and this is something we have been seeing for a long time now, and they're just frustrated that people in D.C. seem to serve their own interests and not take care of the country or care about an economy that serves everybody or a national security policy that makes sense as opposed to enriching the military-industrial complex. And so when you recruit candidates who are really outsiders like this, it can be good. I mean, they also can, you know, they can be just as bad as the rest. But I think that's one of the reasons why they're having such success in the polling, even though they don't have any traditional political experience, because people kind of view that as a favorable thing as opposed to a problem. You mentioned Fetterman and the Pennsylvania race and the debate. What did we learn about the media shortly before that debate when an NBC reporter was taken to task for about a week by other journalists for simply saying, look, I interviewed Fetterman and he had a hard time communicating with me. So yeah, Dasha Burns said that she did this interview with assistance for Fetterman. So he got to read captions. It's a type of assistance that most politicians aren't allowed to have, but Uh, The media have been providing that for him, and he got to use that during the debate. But she said that without that captioned assistance, that she wasn't entirely sure he understood what she was saying. And she was destroyed over that. I mean, people just mocked her. Very prominent journalists said, maybe she's just not very good at small talk. And then we all saw the debate. It was the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. I was actually very frustrated for him that the people who are nearest to him, like loved ones and family members, didn't protect him from that spectacle. I mean, he couldn't answer basic questions. I was cringing the whole time I was watching it. And afterwards, you know, people realized that the media who had attacked Dasha Burns, you know, had lied about his capabilities. And I don't think we learned anything new because we experienced the exact same thing in the 2020 election when the corporate media essentially ran the Joe Biden campaign. He kind of stayed off the trail. They did the messaging. They did the issues of the day. They would provide gentle circumstances in which he could put his best foot forward. They didn't make a big deal about his lack of campaigning. They didn't make a big deal about his mental decline or his inability to handle the rigors of campaigning. So we already watched them do it on a much bigger scale than a Senate race. So I'm not sure it was that surprising to learn that they're still lying. Molly Hemingway is our guest. We're talking about the 2022 midterm elections. When we come back, what gubernatorial races intrigue her and what does she expect from President Biden's address tonight? What can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, as we move on into St. Luke's Gospel, we come to the Annunciation, the Visitation, Magnificat. 
Nativity of St. John the Baptist and Benedictus Part 1. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Have you thought about eternal life? When does it begin? What is eternal life? Well, your eternal life does not begin when your body, earthly body, fails and is laid into the grave. It begins, in fact, in the waters of holy baptism where you are tied to the death of Christ and in him you were raised. To learn more about this topic of eternal life, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do. Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The midterm elections is our topic. Molly Hemingway of The Federalist and Fox News is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. November is Military Family Month. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces supports Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains who deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Find out more about their service at lcms.org slash armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. Molly, I'm curious, what gubernatorial races intrigue you? Well, definitely Cary Lake in Arizona. I think that one is fascinating because everyone in D.C., where I am, just hates her. And she is on track to win that gubernatorial race. And, in fact, might help Blake Masters win as well, which is just the opposite of what the narrative has been that has been pushed here in the D.C. area. There are a bunch of races that are interesting, like Tudor Dixon against Gretchen Whitmer and Hochul's race against Lee Zeldin in New York. I think the Democrats will win those, but they're still, I mean, they were really supposed to be shutouts for the Democrats and they're closer than anticipated. There's also the Oregon race where a Democrat is poised to lose that race for the first time in like 30 years. And that is a sign of the frustration with Democrat policies, mostly in Portland, where crime is again rampant. 
drug programs are not serving the community very well. And the Democrat Party is very resistant to the complaints of the people. I want your thoughts on the nationalization of what were previously kind of state races. I'm thinking about Beto O'Rourke in Texas and Stacey Abrams in Georgia, that they raise a lot of money outside those states. Both of them are still trailing pretty far behind in the polls now for their elections. What do you make of that nationalization of what used to be state or local elections? Yeah, I don't know enough about the history of of whether that's like a real deviation from what we've had, although I assume it is a big deviation. It's a problem when you nationalize race. Like usually it's a sign that the candidate isn't going to perform well in their own state when they have to raise so much money outside the state. You'd see it with Republican candidates as well. Frequently there are these people who run in super blue areas, but they're saying interesting things or they're compelling candidates. And so they get a ton of outside support, even though there's no way they can win that race. Robert Francis O'Rourke has always been popular with liberals across the country. He is extremely unpopular with actual Texans, and he's been running a race that seems more designed to raise money from Californians than to win. His attacks on First and Second Amendment, this is not something you do in Texas if you're trying to win. Stacey Abrams was supposed to be like Beto O'Rourke a big rising star in the Democrat Party. She put her name out there as a potential vice president candidate, to which President Biden, then former Vice President Biden said, no, thank you, wisely. But, you know, she was trumpeted by many in the media as what the shape of things to come. And she has run a very bad campaign. She's just kind of illiterate about science. She claimed that we don't know how babies are made, that when you hear an ultrasound, that that's just the patriarchy trying to make you think it's the sound of your baby when really it's just them trying to control you. I mean, she's just kind of been a disaster. I know that she's trying to make abortion the big issue, like we talked about earlier, but it's she's just not run a very good campaign. If Republicans take the House and Senate, How do you expect many in the mainstream media to explain these losses? So first off, I don't view the media that you're talking about as mainstream. I think they're radical, and I think they're pushing propaganda and left-wing propaganda. So I assume they will do much of what they have been doing in, in a similar way. I don't know. It'll be. I'm kind of curious to see. You've seen some negative pieces about Biden recently. I think they're trying to make him the reason why they're doing poorly. I think that's actually unfair to Biden. Not that I'm wanting to defend him particularly, but Biden's policies are not opposed by anybody in the Democrat Party. So it's the policies that are unpopular, and they want to make it the person of Joe Biden. And I get that he can be embarrassing, and he's having trouble walking around and speaking coherently. You know, this week he had a disastrous day on the campaign trail where he had made false claims about his son's death and meeting the maker of insulin and the name of the war that we're fighting right now, even though we're not officially fighting a war. You know, he just, it's awful, but it's not really his problem when the entire Democrat Party supports the entirety of his platform and his governing approach. So they'll probably try to make it personal when they would be better served to think through the policies, I think. A media fixture, George Will, has an op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal where he openly says that neither President Biden nor Kamala Harris should stand for election in 2024. 
he ended it by saying that the Republicans were likely to put forth an incompetent candidate. I think it's Reed Trump and the Democrats shouldn't do the same. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, George Will is obsessed with hatred of Donald Trump. So he's not always the best. He doesn't read the political situation particularly well. But I do agree with him that if Trump throws his hat in the ring, and he is likely to do that, that Democrats would be very poorly served to have Biden and Kamala as the opposing choice. People have seen enough to know that they don't really think either of them are particularly competent or able to handle things. And polling shows that like enough people regret voting for Biden over Trump that if there were a rematch, they would be in very serious danger of not winning re-election. I think you'll start to see a lot of Democrats kind of broaching the subject, pushing other candidates or having, you'll start to see other people throw their hat in the ring. We'll have to see, but it's very rare that you have an incumbent who doesn't run for re-election or who is opposed internally in the party in a serious way. But even unserious challenges usually correlate with a loss in that second run. I think there's only one time that a president faced an internal party challenge, won the primary, and then also won the general election. It usually weakens them to the point that they are taken out in the general election. Do you think we'll see more high-profile Democratic politicians like Tulsi Gabbard exiting the party? Yeah, I think that happens a lot when a party has historic losses. It's likely that these midterms will be big problems for Democrats. It's not certain, but it's likely. And whenever that happens, people who feel that they are less comfortable in their party start making a switch. I will say, though, back to what I was saying earlier, very few Democrats have opposed the Democrat policy agenda. You have almost nobody who has voted against some of these massive spending bills or really extreme legislative packages, like they have an abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy, taxpayer-supported bill that I think essentially every Democrat voted for. In the Senate, occasionally Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin will have a slight deviation, but it's really rare. In the House, it's almost nobody. So I'm not sure who in a national way would be moving away from the Democrat Party. I think you might start to see much bigger change at the state and local level where people have just started to feel that the Democrat Party is out of touch with normalcy or reality. Some of the stuff they're being forced to push uh, because of their adherence to their base voters is just toxic. Some of the radical agenda on curriculum setting and, you know, whether it's race or sex or other things. So I think you're going to just see more and more people wanting to get as far away from that as possible. What do you expect to hear from President Biden's address tonight? I'm fascinated. President Biden is speaking at Union Station, which is our train station that used to be a bustling, vibrant place. It's now a shell. It's empty. They just did a massive renovation and stores cannot survive there because of the bad economy and also because D.C. has a very bad homeless problem right now. And Union Station is one of the centers for that, which is where he's speaking. So it's a really weird setting, particularly if you're not going to talk about crime, 
homelessness, substance abuse, the type of things that people are really worried about in city centers. He said he was going to talk about election denialism and threats to democracy. These are left-wing propaganda terms to say that if you vote for someone different than who the establishment wants you to vote for, then you're a threat to democracy. It would be funny if it weren't so sort of terrifying the way that they're trying to argue that voting Republican should be a criminal act. And then also with election denialism, I'm actually kind of surprised he's going to talk this way because I anticipate that Democrats will in very short order be challenging a bunch of elections. It's what they've done throughout their entire history. For the last two years, we have called such challenges denialism. It's an absurd, juvenile propaganda term that no adult should really use unless you're mocking it. People are allowed to have challenges to elections and how they're administered. That doesn't mean they're denying whether elections occurred or whether whether it happened. And so the language is used to marginalize and disparage people of a different political persuasion by comparing them with Holocaust deniers or other groups like that. So he's going to do that tonight. I maybe polling or focus groups show that this type of scaremongering is good for a last minute get out the vote effort, but we'll have to see how it goes. Molly Hemingway is a Fox News contributor. She's editor-in-chief for The Federalist and author of the books Rigged and Justice on Trial. You'll find a link to these books and to The Federalist at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Molly, thank you. Thank you. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastor David Peterson answer the question, do Jesus and his apostles advocate for communism or vows of poverty? We'll talk with Dr. Stephen Parks about proof-texting early church fathers and Roman Catholicism, and we'll discuss 17th century Lutheran theologian Johann Gerhard on eternal life with Dr. Ben Mays. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You can help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th.